Hi, I'm Kenny Loggins, and you're listening to Life Minute. Legendary singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins is most definitely still all right. With more than 25 million albums sold worldwide and chart-topping hits that span four decades. And of course, he's the force behind the biggest movie soundtracks ever, like this one. Now 36 years later, it's being used again in the recent release of Top Gun Maverick, the sequel, capturing a whole new generation of fans. The two-time Grammy winner chatted with us virtually from his home in California to talk all about his legendary career, his long-awaited memoir, Still Alright, out this month, current tour, which will include two shows with his former collaborator, Jim Messina, and so much more. This is a Life Minute with Kenny Loggins. Hi, Kenny. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Things are going very well, and beautiful summer finally here, and... And now we're going to hit the road in a few days. Yay. Oh, that's so great. So great. You have a lot going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> where do we even start? New singles, a memoir, a tour. Uh, and of course, you know, Danger Zone being featured again in Top Gun. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Top Gun thing, you know, goes back to the very beginning, 30 some years ago, uh, when everybody started talking about a sequel. And it never seemed to happen. And then I ran into Tom Cruise about six years ago. We were both doing Jimmy Kimmel. And I hadn't known him. I hadn't met him up to that point. And I said, okay, I, I know you're doing the new Top Gun now. Is Danger Zone going to be a part of that? And he said, yeah, it wouldn't be Top Gun without Danger Zone. Uh -huh. So, and he stayed true to his word. And we uh, just kept going. I got uh, talked to by the director of the film who came to me and asked for a couple of remakes. But in the long run, they loved the original version so much, Tom felt that that was what conjured the spirit of the original Top Gun, and therefore he wanted to put that at the beginning of the movie. It was a good call, obviously, it works well. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. I can't believe it's been 36 years. I was thinking about all the songs you've done for all these movies, some of my favorites, Caddyshack is another one. I think that made that movie. Um, Footloose, like so many. Um, you've really created the soundtracks of the best movies of all time. How did that even happen? <laughs> yeah, that's just all luck. You know, that the movies would hold up this long and that then the songs hold up with the movies. And the movies and songs are so married that, that one enhances the other. And I think that's part of why the songs have lasted so long. Um, and what are your, your touring now? Tell us about touring and, you know, do you see a lot of new fans coming out? Well, the, the book is reaching a lot of people that I wasn't sure would happen. Uh, so between the, the Top Gun resurgence and then, and then the book coming out at just coincidentally the same time, that the two have been married in a way that the book is getting a lot more attention than it might have. So I'm doing a, a book tour and it'll be, you know, about seven or eight shows that are done with a fellow named Adam Reeder, who, who, who builds himself as the professor of rock. And we do it as an interview format. But when I tell a story that leads to a song, then I get up and play the song with my band. So it's part concert and part interview uh, format. We've done one and it went, went over really, really well. So I'm hoping that uh, these next six or so will do the same thing, capture that audience. And tell us about the memoir, you know, what, what inspired it and why now? Well, I'd been asked for a few years to, to write a memoir, but I felt that 
now was the time. Uh, it was the deal was made before 2020, but certainly when when the pandemic happened and we're all sitting home alone, that's when the process really started. I worked with a co-writer, Jason Turbo, and Jason would basically interview me and help me put my stories into a chronological order. And that really helped create the form. And then he would write out a rough draft of the first chapter, send it to me. I would completely rewrite it based on my sensibilities and my memories. And then certain things would trigger, stories would trigger more stories. And I put all that together and then he'd take it and put it into a more scholarly form. And then I would rip it apart again and put it all in my words and make sure that I felt my, my spirit and my essence was present in each chapter. And, uh, and so we, we kept bouncing it back and forth in that way. And he kept saying, you know, we have to stop this at some point. You know, we yeah. just have to put something down. But the, but the dynamics between the two of us, the push and pull of having a collaborator was, was really effective for this book. And you said you learned things about yourself. What did you learn? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one thing I learned was that uh, I'm not a consistent person. And I thought, I thought, you know, that when I made up a, a rule of behavior for myself, that I would live by that rule, whatever that, not, not the case. I still come up with a rule that I think I'm living by. But when I really start to tell the stories, I go, wait a minute. The reason that thing screwed up is because I didn't live by that thing that I felt I needed to know. So many contradictions in our lives that we don't really realize. And the, the heartaches that happen in our lives come from being in some level of disparity with ourselves. I don't know any other way to learn something than the hard way. Once I make the mistake and I try to then integrate, therefore, I should never shoot myself in the foot ever again. And that may or may not happen, but uh, you know, I try to learn as I go along, we all do. And um, it's interesting to see where I make the same mistakes over and over again, especially when it comes to women. But <laughs> that, that, tends to be, uh, that tends to be a life learning process. What about your music? How did it affect your music? Um, well, all my life affects my music. You know, my, I write very autobiographical music. Leap of Faith is what I consider to be my best work because it begins with the dissolution of my first marriage and the emotional process that, 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 that takes place. And then in the process of that all coming apart, I fell in love again. And so now we integrate the new relationship into that. So the, the cycle of that album is, is basically, you know, birth, death, rebirth, or otherwise known as death, rebirth. And it's, it's one of those moments in a writer's life where they, I really had something to say. And the music that came through was almost like it was guided. Like uh, the uh, songs, melodies, ideas came in such solid form to me that, uh, that it was like taking dictation and, or, or recording the album was like paint by numbers. I knew exactly what the picture was and I just had to kind of fill it in. Then there was just a, a sense of being gifted a, a, a kind of full form of music that became that album. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why I talk so much about Leap of Faith, what it means to the audience. We call them the leapers that, that really went through that process with me.
it's it's it, it could be a very transforming album what would your current self say to your younger self I would say the same thing that my music said to me all along, which is follow your heart, trust your heart and learn to listen to it. And really, it's it's a much bigger lesson than that one little phrase sounds like to learn to hear what your heart has to say. That's your inner guide. And then to trust it enough to react to it, to actually physically do something different <laughs> in order to respond to that takes a lifetime to learn. What inspires you as an artist? Everything. The music that's around me, the people that I meet. Somebody will say something in the middle of a dinner conversation that I have to write down. Uh, there's always that part of my mind listening in that way as a writer. Um, and I, I'm grateful for that. I taught myself how to do that. And now it's just who I am. It's just a part of me. As a matter of fact, wrote a line down last night, just because you can doesn't mean you don't have to. The original line is just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, then I'll go back into my notebook and I'll look at it and I'll go, oh, I get, I get where that was coming from. I can write that. That's going to be a, a hook in a song or something. So I'm still writing stuff down because what I really want to get to is less traveling, less touring and more actual creativity, studio writing, you know, have that be that part of my latter years. You've obviously had a remarkable career. When you look back on everything and currently, um, is there anything you do differently? I haven't really thought about it in that way. Anything you do differently leads to a different song in the end. Well, I think as a good uh, metaphor, we tend to look at past relationships that didn't work out as being a mistake when there's no such thing. That relationship didn't work out for a reason. Maybe it was to set you up for the next one, to make you realize what you can compromise on and what you can't compromise on, what you need and what you don't need. And, uh, and so that relationship, therefore, was not a mistake. It was the right thing you had to do at the time you did it. Right. And you know, when, when you're going through the heartbreak, it's easy to say, oh, boy, I was an idiot for that. I totally screwed that up. And I, I should never have gone there in the first place. And it's not necessarily true. Once you get enough distance away, you can see, wow, I'm glad I did that because I learned this and this and this, which has taken me out of this relationship. Yeah. It's the same thing in artistically. You know, when I find like I wrote about it in the book, how Jimmy and I tried to imitate Mamado dance with my music because the record company said, do one just like that. We want another hit. And we should have said, I get it. I understand what you want. It's not going to be that. <laughs> we don't do that. And uh, and I made that mistake a couple of times till I finally, finally went, you know, I got to get away from those influences and follow what, like I said, follow my heart, follow where my muse wants to go. I just have to tell you, I'm a huge Grace and Frankie fan. I watch uh -huh. them over and over. I'm obsessed. And my favorite one was when you were on it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. Nobody says no to Kenny Loggins. <laughs> like working with Lily and Jane. They're great. They're great. Yeah. I've known Jane for many years. I, I knew her when she lived in Santa Barbara uh, with Tom Hayden. And, uh, and she's an amazing person. She, talk about a person who's followed her heart. It's just every step of the way. She, she damn it, she does what, whatever the hell her inner voice tells her to do, wow. even when the rest of the country is not happy about it. Um, but she's, she's the consummate artist. And of course, Lily is crazy in a good way.
<laughs> That's because I'm not married to her. <laughs> can know that. You know, she's she's a fantastic actress too. I, I never realized until really dropped into her work on that level. So yeah, they're terrific. They're easy to be with. What about Caddyshack? Did you uh, meet Rodney Dangerfield and all those people? No, I came in uh, too late. Too late to meet them. I, I I casually met Bill Murray, but I I met him years later as well in a restaurant where we got to sit and talk about the past. Uh, you, music usually shows up as the last passenger on that train, and you know the movie's well done and the the actors are on to their next projects before I come in to write a song. And, and so I, I didn't get to meet very many of them. I knew Chevy Chase from Saturday Night Live era, but you know, like I never met Rodney and, and any of the others. Um, what do you consider your biggest milestones or you know, favorite memories? The fact that I wrote the book you know, is, is a compilation of my favorite memories. Uh, when and and so many things that I don't remember, you know, that I really had to make a lot of phone calls and interview old friends and really try to dig down deeper into well, what really happened then. And I'm I, in some cases I got three different stories for the same event, oh. which just made it more confusing. <laughs> and and which one do you pick, right? Just because so and so swears that it went that way doesn't mean it went that way. Um, but I, I think. The one we opened with, the story of where my tapes were stolen, uh, the master tapes for Leap of Faith, and waiting to, to get the tapes back, continuing to overdub on it as if they were still in my hands. And then they show up and I could put everything together and I go to the meeting to prove to the new president of Columbia Records that I'm actually making a record because no one had heard it. And how that story ends up and everything about it is like one of my favorite stories. I can tell the story if you want me to. Yeah. And this was in the end of the 80s. I was going through the dissolution of my marriage and the falling in love time with my second, who would become my second wife. And I found myself writing a lot during that period of time. I was writing a song called Now or Never, which would be about the, the torture of having to make a decision that would be a life-changing decision. And the music was just flooding in. I was getting song after song after song, and I knew they were really strong. And in the process, I was spending a bunch of money trying to make that record because I really had a vision for what that record should be. And I was about three quarters of the way through it, over half a million dollars into that record, when um, I decided to move my headquarters from L LA to a recording studio in Santa Barbara where I lived. And in the process, we loaded up the truck with all the equipment, the two 32-track Mitsubishi digital recorders, which was new digital innovations in recording, amplifiers, guitars, all sorts of effects into a rider truck. And on the way from LA to Santa Barbara, the truck was stolen and, and everything was gone, including all my master tapes. And in those days, you would make a master tape, you'd have your basics, your, your bass, drums, some guitars, maybe a keyboard, essential elements of your song. Then you'd make copies of that and do all your overdubs on copies so you don't degrade the original in any way. And because we're still on tape and there's still oxide happening. So you save the masters until you get all your overdubs done. And then you try to 
put it all together. You bring all that stuff together. So the truck was stolen, master tapes were gone. Uh, I got a phone call from my head of the A&R department and my Bobby Columbia was my main creative guy at Columbia Records. And he was like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna have to re-record all your master information. And I said, no, I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't think I need to do that. I have a feeling that the tapes will be back. And he said, well, I, whatever you're taking, I want some of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how you're managing to keep your head during this time, but I did. And I think it was because I had this feeling that the music had been given to me in a kind of guided way. And that I, I just didn't make sense to me logically that something of this level of importance would come through and I would actually record it and then have it just disappear and nobody gets to hear it. It's like, that doesn't make sense. So I felt that it would come back. And simultaneously with all that, Columbia created a new president and they brought a new president of the label in. He gets in and he says, wait a minute, what's this Loggins doing? What's he doing? It's like, he's a half a million dollars into this record and nobody's heard any of it. There was quite a kerfuffle around that. So he said, I'm going to do the work that I have to do. I need you to show me the new record when I get back. So in a month, give me some rough mixes. That wouldn't have been a problem if I'd had my master tapes. So I decided to continue recording as if I still had them and do all my overdubs on the separate tapes, trusting that at some point the originals would come back and then I could piece it all together. So that's what I did. And uh, it got about three weeks into that month and the truck had still not been found. Finally, the police found the truck wow. with about four days left in my month. Oh my we gathered all and, and, and what we discovered was everything was gone. Everything was stolen except the tapes, which had been moved from the back of the truck into the cab and locked up in the front of the truck. Oh my God. And wow. the sun, sun had not been damaged them. They were all in great shape. We brought wow. them back in. We pieced all the overdubs into that. I did about two all-nighters. And Amazing. then I took the rough mixes into where Donnie was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel and, and uh, played him the rough mix, except a few of the songs. And here's where the story got a little murky, was <laughs> Bobby insisted that I sang the whole record to, to them live with the tracks. Um, Donnie, the president of the company said, yeah, I remember you sang a couple things live, but mostly you played the tracks. And for me, in my memory, I didn't sing anything live. I just came and played the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the story. I like the version of the story where I sang it to him. So I gave I gave the book that version. So I sang the album to him with the with the tracks of the album behind me, and and he loved it. And he said, "I'm so glad this is on Columbia Records, and I'm more than happy to help." And it was the first time in my career that I had five singles released from one album. Yeah, and that was at an era. You know, I'd been on the label since seventy um, one. And here it is 1990. And that's pretty much when they drop most acts from a label because they've been there 20 years. Unless you're Johnny Mathis or something, you're grandfathered in, you're, you're, you gotta move on. And so they were thinking, well, maybe it's time for him to move on. And then Johnny heard the record and said, no, this is a new career, let's keep going. And I can't believe you had the faith in those tapes that they came back. That's also amazing. <laughs> yeah, and wow, I had a, 
a little adjunct to that story was on the way to play the tapes for Donnie at the hotel, uh, I got a message from my manager, Shep Gordon, who said, I'm having all my artists come in and sign this wall as an autograph wall, and I'm going to give it to a restaurant as a ch as charity donation for they can then sell it for whatever they make and, and give it to charity. And so I stopped to sign the wall and I'm standing there and I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to write on this wall? And this saying came to me and, and I wrote, it, it is a good day to die, which comes from uh, a Native American quote uh, from Geronimo, which he told his troops going into battle, because if you go in already dead, you have nothing to lose. Why did you feel that way? Why did that come to your mind? Because I knew that my career was on the line and I knew that I'd done the best I could and it was time to just let go, just let it be what it is. And it was an important moment for me. You know, it, it was what the album was intended to be, a transitional moment. And it all came together. Yeah. And those, those things stay with you. You know, when I drop in and, and, I, and I feel that story, it's like I'm there again. And that sense of being guided, that sense of having spirit walking with you is a special feeling. It does, it's not always there. We're not always aware that we're in the flow. Mm -hmm. So when you get it, it's precious. So did you always know you wanted to be a musician? Pretty much. You know, I, I have memories of of thinking I was a songwriter as far back as like nine years old or somewhere around there, eight or nine. Wow. Um, I remember seeing a movie about George M. Cohan, who was one of the great American songwriters. And I remember thinking, I can do that. Yeah, it's just some part of me knew and held that image all through grammar school and on into when I actually needed to write something and then it just sort of poured out. So I'm lucky that way that I, I've had that as a gift. Who were some of your influences growing up? You know, I, I grew up during the folk music era, so I had a lot of that in there from Joan Baez to Bob Dylan, uh, the songwriters in particular. Um, and, then, and then the Beatles happened and Lennon and McCartney, of course, were pivotal in my education. And of course, my big brother turned me on to his rock records when I was little. So, you know, that, revolution of rock and roll in the 50s I, I was a part of even though I was only a little kid because that my big brother turned me on to everything that that influenced him and um, so I remember coming home from school and playing Elvis Presley records before I'd ever seen a picture of Elvis Presley I just knew that that was great music especially Hound Dog at the beginning and um, oh god and then he turned me on to the, the coasters and the Platters and Fats Domino and and Little Richard and uh, and of course uh, the Dell Vikings and all the early rock and rollers of that middle fifties and so that's that's still a cradle language for me as is as is uh, the folk music era and uh, the singers and songwriters from that period of time. That's why I go from Danny's song at the beginning to Footloose later on. Footloose is really Chuck Berry. It's just a matter of where you're standing on the curve. What are some of your favorite songs to play live? 
Well, I love playing Footloose because the audiences always get up and dance and that's always fun. And of course, Danger Zone now is like the one where they have to get up and dance too. So I, I know my show is going to have a great moment where everybody dances and has fun and then other moments where it's listening, more introspective, like the real thing from Leap of Faith or Danny's song or House of Pooh Corner. Did you ever know that, that you'd be this important? <laughs> you, seem <laughs> no. really, you seem really humble. You know, I haven't really looked at it like that. I, every now and then I, I hear about somebody saying that I was an influence on their music. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the nature of rock and roll. You know, we're all borrowing from each other. We're all learning from each other. We're all redefining the genre. That's why it's a living musical form, mm -hmm. uh, because it keeps getting redefined. And say what you will about modern pop music or synthesizer music, it's all part of the the movement forward that rock and roll can do that classical forms can't do because they can't break out of that. That was defined and it's, it's held steady. It is what it is. And uh, even certain parts of country music that refuse to evolve because they're so iconic in that, in that formula. There are certain musical forms, rock and roll being one of them, or pop music, I guess you could call it now because rock is headed off in so many different directions. But that it's still on the live creative musical form. And you hear it on the radio. Top Gun with the song now, Danger Zone, or all of your songs. How, how does it feel to know you created all these iconic songs? It's nice to know that um, I can now put on a show that most of the audience knows and is eager to hear that song or that song or that song. You know, that I now have a show that I dreamed of creating when I was a young man and have a show that everybody could sing along with. That's pretty amazing. It really makes for a fun time, not just for the audience, but for me. It's like, you know, I remember when my son Crosby was trying to make it as a singer songwriter. And he was like, Dad, what's it like to have the whole audience sing your song? I said, well, someday you'll know. But he didn't get to have that experience. Uh, but it is a special experience to have songs that people want to sing along with. Musicians of today that you enjoy or that, that you think are particularly good? Ed Sheeran, oh, yeah. of course. You know, he's a terrific writer. The, the guy knows a hook when he hears one and he's really smart lyrically. And I think he would be, you know, when he started off, I thought he was the James Taylor of that generation, but he's gone way beyond that into being much more rock and dance and you know broke broken a lot of genres his show is amazing his light show is amazing there's a number of really smart acts out there and really interesting sounds i have a 29 year old son who's very much into uh rap and hip-hop and so he's constantly turning me on to interesting things but his his direction has moved more towards the jazz kind of thing there's some really interesting, you know, he's, he turned me on to Eric Badu like 10 years ago. So there's, there's stuff that he's continually showing me that I love. So what's your favorite way to relax? Uh, well, my favorite way is what we just did during Memorial Day where my, my, all my kids and my grandkids came over and they, we just sit by the pool and barbecue and have time together to catch up, which, you know, that pandemic has it pushed the family apart. It was very difficult on all of us. And now we're finally coming back together again. And this was the first time we had a family gathering. That's my favorite way to relax. But, you know, 
I have a lady in my life now. We enjoy each other very much. And we, during the pandemic, we bought e-bikes and we'd get up in the morning and find the best donut in Santa Barbara. <laughs> That's my hobby. <laughs> Those are my it. next two questions. <laughs> I was going to say, you look amazing. Uh, how do you stay fit? And I was also going to ask you, what's your favorite comfort food? So there you go. Well, you got the donuts on the comfort food, but that's not how I stay fit. (laughs) What I do, my exercise that I love to do, we play it two or three times a week is pickleball. It's really fun. If you're inclined towards tennis or even ping pong, you'll you'll love pickleball. Um, But it's a great, it's a great exercise. It gets the heart rate up and it's a lot of lateral movement. It's like tennis, but on a smaller court. And um, it's just really fun. You laugh a lot when you play it. And I remember playing tennis, there wasn't as much laughter in it because it seemed like a much more serious game. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's what I they do. And biking. It's working for you. You look amazing. What's something you never travel without? My pillow. <laughs> really? I have, yeah, <laughs> I, have, I have to have my own pillow. A lot of hotels just have those foam rubber pillows, and I, I can't tolerate that. And what's next? You sort of answered that, too. Something you want to do you haven't done yet. I want to get back into writing. Uh, it, you know, I've been away from it since 2020. And um, things, as soon as I write a song for, for some people or organization or whatever, then, then shows come from that and other opportunities come from that. So just one thing after another, if I want to stay active, I can. And I think like I wrote in the book, uh, it's important for me to stay active creatively. My writing chops atrophy because um, we couldn't, I, I'm a collaborator and I couldn't get together with anybody and you can't, I can't collaborate over Zoom. My daughter's a songwriter too, Hannah, and she managed to write a lot over Zoom, but I couldn't, I just couldn't get it together because I need the in, instant interplay of pl- singing along with the piano or singing along with the player. And you can't do that on Zoom because of the, the second and a half delay. So I let it I let it sort of go away. And also, I think I just needed a rest. Are there any other tours besides the book playing tour? Are you playing any concerts? Oh, yeah. No, I've got quite a bit of quite a bit of touring this year. And um, I think I'm going to cut way back on the touring next year and maybe just do some kind of finale tour. What are fans going to get when they see you play live? Pretty much the hits they came for. <laughs> um, unless they come coming in for a deep cut or something more obscure. Um, but I'm, I've been doing a solid hour and a half. And, you know, I tell, I tell some of the stories from the book, not like the book tour will. But I tell some of the stories and I... And I uh, play the songs that people seem to know. Uh, and most of my arrangements are similar to the originals, if not exactly the same. So I, I sometimes will let the band meander and jam and go in different places, but we, the essence of the song, you will know which song I'm playing. I remember some friends went to a Dylan show and the husband, wife, and the wife says to him, so what song is this? And the husband says, I think it's Lay, Lady, Lay. And, and I, I, I don't let my arrangements go that far from the originals, but I also don't want to do carbon copies because you can hear that on the radio. So I want you to know that you've been to a show and you've yeah. experienced something more spontaneous. 
but she'll know what song I'm playing. What an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I wish you all the, the best things and congratulations uh, on your memoir and everything you're doing. Thank you. I want you to go. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. To see more of this interview, visit our website, lifeminute.tv. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Life Minute TV.